everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I love you guys so much. I love interacting with you, and I love that you're a part of this family that I've built around me, and just thanks so much for all your love and support. My name is Dana Trubiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., sometimes. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10 a.m., so here I am. Today I'm going to be talking about a ruthless and really powerful figure in the Mafia. He was involved in a wide range of criminal activity, including extortion, gambling, and drug trafficking. He earned his reputation as a tough and feared man, and he was known for his violent temper and willingness to use force to get what he wanted. I know a lot of people don't really love hearing about New York guys because these New York guys have been covered ad nauseum. Like, everybody has covered them. Everybody that has anything to say in, like, the mafia covering scheme, they've covered every single one of these guys. I don't care about that, okay? You like hanging out with me. We have a good time together every week, so we're gonna talk about it, okay? Appreciate you sticking around. That's so nice of you. was born on March 15, 1914, and he was raised at 232 Mulberry Street in Manhattan's Little Italy. And this is lower Little Italy, like what Little Italy is nowadays, but like before it shrunk down to nothing. And the mafia ruled this neighborhood with an iron fist. I know I've talked about this on my channel before, but I have a decent amount of new followers and not every one of my followers have seen every one of my videos. So let's go through this again. Little Italy has always been Little Italy, but the larger Italian population in New York City used to be in East Harlem. Immigrants coming off the boat from Sicily into Ellis Island used to come to New York City and settle into one of these two neighborhoods for the most part. There was a portion of Italian immigrants that would go to the West Village, they'd go to Hell's Kitchen, or to the outer boroughs, Queens, Staten Island, Brooklyn, all of them. But there was two predominantly Italian New York neighborhoods. And it was the one in East Harlem that some people referred to as Little Italy. And then there was the Little Italy downtown that we still have today, but it doesn't even really exist anymore. They call it Little Italy, but it's not Little Italy. But the one that we're going to be talking about today, I'm just going to refer to it by Little Italy because that's what it was called at the time. So the one downtown, it's definitely the poorer of the two neighborhoods. If you don't come to America with a lot of money, you're probably going to be going to the one downtown. And it's also a lot smaller than the one in East Harlem. Back then, it extended from Worth Street on the south, Houston Street on the north, Lafayette Street on the west, and Bowery Street on the east. Nowadays, Little Italy 
it pretty much doesn't even exist. It holds about three blocks of Mulberry Street, and they're north of Canal Street. Back then, though, it was a big section. There was as many as 10,000 Italian immigrants living in the area. That is kind of what prompted everybody that left to leave. There were extremely cramped living conditions, and large families had small apartments that they just could not fit into. The neighborhood has hosted countless numbers of famous names at the start of their career or the start of their lives. I can't even count how many mafia members that I've talked about, even those not from New York, started their journey on Mulberry Street or somewhere in the downtown section of Little Italy. A huge name that came out of that area is actually Martin Scorsese which is probably why it's easy for him to write instant classics about the mafia, like Goodfellas and The Irishman. He was born and raised on Elizabeth Street between Houston and Prince. If you're looking for it, you can definitely tell that Scorsese comes from the Italian culture through his movies. Movies like Casino, Gangs of New York, Italian American, and My Voyage to Italy, it definitely gives you an idea of where he came from. But yeah, he came from downtown Little Italy. He once told a reporter a really good story, but I'm just going to read it directly from his words instead of trying to summarize. I still like to go to DiPaolo's food shop on Mott Street. Mr. DiPaolo was good friends with my parents. Last time I was there, he told me some student who had just moved to the area came in and asked him, what made you open an Italian cheese shop in a Chinese neighborhood? That sums up for me what happened to Little Italy. Even when I lived there, the restaurant row on Mulberry Street was always a little bit showy, more for tourists, and so we always shunned it. Now that's all Little Italy is, a facade. People always say, oh, you need a good Italian restaurant down there? Ask Marty. But when I lived there, if you ate Italian food in a restaurant, you were insulting your mother. Little Italy was a place that existed for maybe 50, 60 years, and now it's all over. It was a stopping point for people. What's amazing to me is that the neighborhood is now a chic place. It gives it new life. Some of it is artificial now, and there's a lack of the old character. Though some of that character is what I moved to get away from. So that's Scorsese's actual words, and it sounds like he wouldn't go back there if he could. The neighborhood was described in a book called The Foul Core of New York Slums in a book written by Jacob Reese. It hosts a bunch of Italian festivals, including the San Gennaro Feast and the Giglio, which are the main income earners for churches in the area. The area started to empty out a little bit after World War II. The war had finally ended. There wasn't shortages on everything anymore. Money wasn't so tight for the entire country. The depression had ended, so everybody wasn't so poor or starving anymore. And jobs weren't so scarce. So now that people had a little bit more access to money, they used it to get the hell out of this cramped, tiny little area that they were dwelling in like sewer rats. And they started to move out to New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut, Brooklyn, Queens, or Staten Island, just to the places that they had a little more room. Nowadays, the area is much more heavily inhabited by Chinatown, which is right next to Little Italy. And Little Italy literally only stretches a few blocks. The company Sorrento, the one that makes cheese, it heavily funds the neighborhood's traditional festivals and kind of in turn the neighborhood itself. It now belongs to a French company, which is just awesome. So back to Della Croce. 
His parents, Francesco and Antoinette Della Croce, were first-generation immigrants from Italy. Della Croce had one brother named Carmine. There's not really a lot of information out there about his parents or what kind of work they did or really much about his childhood at all, to be honest. I don't really know. I know much more about when he got older, and this is the second week in a row that I can't tell you about a Mafia member's childhood, and it drives me a little crazy. I love being able to tell you the conditions in which somebody grew up and kind of maybe give a little bit of a reason as to why they behave the way they do. But alas, we don't have that information here, so we're working with what we got, guys. Aniello was married to Lucille Riccardi, and they had one child together, a son named Armand. He also had the obligatory Gumar that lasted for decades, and he put her up in Staten Island. He considered her his second wife, and honestly, they were together long enough and lived together long enough that she really would be his common-law wife if not for the actual wife. They had a beautiful house together, and if I was the actual wife, I'd be pissed as hell. I feel like the Gumars always get the better end of the stick. They get the prettier houses in the better neighborhoods. They get to have the yard and the car and the everything while the wives kind of get stuck in these apartments and they do that because, you know, mafia members want to have somewhere to go when they're in the city and somewhere to go where they can watch a dog run in a yard, so... So he's the Gumar that gets the yard, though, every time. He was referred to pretty often as Neil or Mr. Neil, which is just pretty much America's version of Aniello, so that's why he picked up that name. His other nicknames were Father O'Neill because he had a habit of dressing like a priest at times. He would walk around Manhattan dressed as a priest and call himself Father O'Neill as to confuse the police and other mobsters, especially rival mobsters. He also allegedly committed a murder dressed as a priest. He also was known by Timothy O'Neill, which is just an alias, the Polak, because he had a lot paler skin than your typical mafioso, and he had light blue eyes, as Polaks do, I guess. The tall guy, because he stood at a whopping five foot, ten inches. And if there's anything we know about them Italian boys, they are short as hell. So it makes sense that somebody at an average height of 5'10 would get the nickname the tall guy. But completely average height for a man. But whatever. I guess not average in Italy. In the Italian language, his first and last name literally mean little lamb of the cross. Aniello means lamb, della of the, croce, cross, hence Aniello della croce. In his teen years, he was a butcher's assistant, but he soon turned to crime like pretty much any other mafia member or anyone that got involved in crime. They had one or two legit jobs before they flipped over to crime and they just decided like, yeah, nine to five, not for me. Della Croce was also arrested at one point for petty theft, 
So he was into robbery, too. I also saw it mentioned somewhere that he used a body double for some public events. I don't see that ever confirmed anywhere. I just wanted to mention it because I saw it, and I didn't want somebody to be like, you should have mentioned that he used the body double at public events. So yeah, that's reported. I don't know if there's any truth to it. It's a little bit weird because, like, you're not a congressman or something, but, you know, whatever. To each his own. Aniello Della Croce took pleasure in killing people. People would say that he would like to peer into the face of his victims, like some kind of dark angel at the time that they were dying, like the moment of death. He liked to look into their faces as they died. This is foreshadowing, so if you know anything about any other mafiosi that I've covered, this is why he has such a close relationship later on to Albert Anastasia. They have similar psychotic hobbies and interests. Della Croce's career in the world of organized crime began in the late 1930s when he joined the Mangano crime family, the family that would later come to be known as the Gambino family. Albert Anastasia was the Mangano family underboss, and he took Della Croce under his wing pretty instantly. There is a shit ton of descriptions out there about Della Croce's appearance. A huge amount of them are aimed towards his eyes. Joseph Kofi, a former New York mob investigator, said that Della Croce was one of the scariest individuals I've ever met in my life. Della Croce's eyes were like he didn't have any eyes. Did you ever see Children of the Damned? His eyes were so blue that they weren't even there. It was like looking right through him. Ralph Salerno, a former police detective, said, Aniola Della Croce, a tough man, of all the gangsters that I've met personally, and I've met dozens of them in all of my years, there were only two who, when I looked them straight in the eyes, I decided I wouldn't want them to be personally mad at me. Aniela Della Croce was one, and Carmine Galante was the other. They had bad eyes. I mean, they had the eyes of killers. You looked at Della Croce's eyes, and you could see how frightening they were. The frigid glare of a killer. Even in his early days, Della Croce very strongly believed in the old-school way of thinking. La Cosa Nostra above all, even your dying child. He was known for saying, the boss is the boss is the boss. Pretty much meaning that, like, whoever was in place as boss of the family at that time is your boss. And that is who he was going to follow, that was who he was going to protect, he was going to respect, and he was going to listen to. That's the one that made the rules. To be honest with you, I kind of always hated Della Croce, but a conversation that I had in the comments of one of my videos one time with one of my viewers made me rethink my assessment of him. I read a book a while back, and I can't remember the name of it. I want to say it was the Five Families book that Rob wrote. I can't remember what book it was, but I read this book, and they told this story in the book, and it just soured my opinion for Della Croce forever. In this book, it's mentioned that the FBI would talk about what happened outside the Ravenite Social Club while they were watching it. There was this stray dog, a German Shepherd, that used to sleep outside of the Ravenite. According to the FBI, when Della Croce would have a bad day, he would walk outside the door and kick this poor, innocent, stray dog who was just minding his business and already living the impossibly hard life that a homeless animal, especially in New York City, lives. 
So that story made me absolutely hate Della Croce. But when I posted my first video about Gotti, I was talking to a viewer in the comments, and they said something that really made me stop and think, and it changed the way that I thought forever. So if you ever think that your comments don't matter, they literally change the way that I think. The FBI rarely tells the truth. Like, this is cops we're dealing with. And she was right. Like, how many times has the FBI just straight up made shit up? Fabricated shit. Exaggerated stories that happen. Fabricate evidence. Like, they do this shit all the time. They want you to hate these people. For all I know, Della Croce could have, like, hip-checked the dog, and the FBI was like, oh, Abuse! Abuse! I call animal abuse! He, saw he hit him! I saw it! So, like, we don't know what happened, and it's wrong of me to assume that he was abusing this poor animal just because the FBI said it. So, it made me hate him a little less. Anyways, Della Croce was inducted as a maid member into the Mangano family in the early 1940s. His mentor, Albert Anastasia, BFF of Lucky Luciano, had begun Murder Incorporated after the charges cleared from the indictments that were brought up against him in 1932 and 1933. He worked together with Louis Lepke Bucalter and Abe Kid Twist Rells to form the group that would carry out any of the mob hits that had to be taken care of at the time. This group was made up of Italian and Jewish mafia members, and the Italians would kill the Jewish members, and the Jewish members would kill the Italians, and that way it was never traced back to who was actually ordering the hit. If you're interested in more information on Murder, Inc., go check out my Albert Anastasia video. We're not going to go too much into that right now. Anyways, when shit hit the fan with Murder Incorporated, all of the Jewish members ended up going to jail, and a lot of them got the chair. Anastasia pulled off some G-shit, and he was able to save each and every Italian that was included in Murder, and got them all to not see one day in prison for the crimes that they had committed while working under Murder, Inc. I think that the Jewish guys went down because Kid Twist Rells was kind of one of them, and when one of your people flipped, it just kind of, you get a little more screwed. But Anastasia made sure that Rells was taken out, and he did allow it to go down to the wire. Three guards were paid to take out Rells, and he took him out the day that he was supposed to testify against Anastasia. He is such a G that he even pulled off the jury ruling that Rells' death was an accident. He didn't even catch a charge for killing the rat. This man was an absolute legend. Albert Anastasia was known as the executioner of the organization, or Lord High Executioner, if you're fancy. Della Croce was Anastasia's protege. He he was in Murder Incorporated, and we know that that group is Anastasia's baby, so if he did well there, you just know that Anastasia loved this man. Vincent Mangano was the boss of the family, and I'll explain later on in this episode when I talk about Frank Scalise how Mangano ended up in that position of power, but he suddenly disappeared on April 19th, 1951, and his brother Philip's body was discovered in Jamaica. Bay on that same day. Nobody ever found Mangano's body. Albert Anastasia met with the commission, and he told them that the brothers had had a plan to kill him. He didn't admit to killing the two brothers, but everybody in attendance, everybody in the public, everybody in the whole wide world knew that he did it. 
Anastasia, with the support and backing of Frank Costello and Joseph Bonanno, took Mangano's position as the boss of the family, and it was now the Anastasia family. As soon as Anastasia took position as boss of the family, he immediately promoted Della Croce to one of the top capos in the family. Della Croce was soon making a shit ton of money, and he purchased the Ravenite Social Club in Little Italy, and it was meant to be, like, the group hangout. And it ended up being the hub for all of his illegal activities and where all the people in his crew hung out. It also just so happened to be across the street from his apartment, which how convenient. From this point forward and all throughout the 50s and 60s, Della Croce's star just continued to steadily rise. He ended up commanding a small army of soldiers, and he became one of the most capable and powerful members of the Anastasia family. His crew, which was not one that you wanted to go up against, came to be known as the Mulberry Street Crew. Della Croce was arrested in 1956 for that beautiful little criminal consorting with known hoodlums charge. He was charged with having possession of blackjack paraphernalia, I guess? I don't even really know what he was charged with, to be honest. They called it illegal possession of homemade 12. No idea what that means. I know it has something to do with gambling. I'm thinking it has to do with, like, he had cards and chips or something for blackjack. I'm not really 100% sure. He was arrested with two other members in his crew, DePaolo and Oreo. And try as I absolutely might, I cannot find mention of these two guys anywhere else in the world except in this one location explaining this one arrest. So these guys could not exist in real life, for all I know. I don't know where these guys came from. On October 25th, 1957, Anastasia was shot in a barber shop in Manhattan, and the underboss, Carlo Gambino, took control of the family. It was assumed that Carlo Gambino had conspired to kill Anastasia with Tommy Lucchese and Vito Genovese. I've talked about this a lot in previous videos. If you're interested in the whole story, I believe that I put the whole thing in the Luciano video. I know for sure I put it in the Anastasia video. So I'll link those videos below if you are interested. Go check them out, but I'm not going to go through it here. On February 13th, 1970, Edward J. McLaughlin, acting on behalf of the Joint Legislative Committee on Crime, questioned Aniello Della Croce. In this line of questioning, McLaughlin revealed his theories about Della Croce pretty much to the world. He claims that Della Croce was a flip-flopper, telling some fellow mafiosi that he wanted Gambino's position as boss of the family for himself, while telling others that he actually wanted it for Joseph N. Gallo. Although Della Croce didn't really talk much at the trial and consistently invoked his right to remain silent and not incriminate himself, we did get to hear the FBI's version of events of what happened at this place, and usually they're right. They won't bring it up in court unless they've had it confirmed either by a CI or heard it for themselves on one of the wiretaps. Usually it's illegally placed. McLaughlin references a meeting between Della Croce and Gallo, Gambino, Traficante, and Marcello at La Stella restaurant in Forest Hills in 1966 that ended up getting raided. And he asks if this meeting was called to see whether or not Della Croce would take over as leader of the family. In this trial, he accuses Della Croce of going in front of the Mafia Commission to request to take Gambino's place as boss of the family. In this accusation, it is mentioned that Della Croce is 55 and Gambino is 67. 
has a heart condition and has a deportation case against him. So it's mentioned by McLaughlin that, like, his future isn't so certain. He then asks if a recent trip to Miami to meet Traficante had been set up to remove Marcelo from a mutual business arrangement that the three had together in vending machines in a further bid to take control of the family. I'll link the Marcelo video to the description here if you're interested in Carlos Marcelo. Super interesting story. Go check out that video. But we are not going through him here. One huge revelation that he made in this series of accusations, which pretty much came across as him testifying to the jury in the form of questions since Dela Croce wasn't really responding. So, like, he's asking these questions, and he's like, well, isn't it true that this happened? And Dela Croce's not responding, so it kind of comes across as McLaughlin testifying for him. He reveals that Dela Croce had received a severe beating in 1961 from a gang of Crazy Joe Gallo's men, led by Larry Big Lollipop Karna, a member of the Gallo faction in the Profaci versus Gallo War. The altercation took place at Luna Restaurant, and Dela Croce suffered such severe injuries that the FBI was convinced that he would have been killed if some of Genovese's soldiers hadn't stepped in and stopped the beating from happening. The prosecutor followed up this revelation that Dela Croce had gotten his ass beat with an accusation that Karna, who had been shot in the ankle on December 11th, three months after jumping Dela Croce, was attacked as a direct result of this beating, and that Michael Marino, whose body had been discovered in the trunk of a car in 1968, was killed on Dela Croce's orders because he stood up the way of Joseph N. Gallo replacing Gambino, which is what Dela Croce wanted to happen. The FBI would later claim that Karna getting shot was likely not a reprisal for the beating, given that the murder of Salvatore Di Simone took place only days later. We know from the Gallo video, linked below, that there was a ton of casualties of the Gallo Wars, and the FBI claims that Karna was just almost made one of those casualties and that's all there was to the attack. It wasn't this big conspiracy. It wasn't in retaliation for the beating that Dela Croce received. It was just because he was on the wrong side and the people of the other side went after him and they tried to kill him. This isn't the first time that we catch wind that there is a physical altercation between Gallo and his crew and Dela Croce. An article that was written five days after Crazy Joe Gallo was killed talks about the Gallo Wars. This article, and the one above it, is freaking the F out about an impending mafia war that's about to break out or has already broken out on the streets of New York. This whole shit is going down within the Gambino and the Colombo crime families. The Colombos, at the time of the article, are flailing in the wind. They basically have no leadership because Colombo, when he took control of the family, took out all the guys that had the real experience and could, like, handle themselves and run the family, and he put them on the back burner, and he took a bunch of young, inexperienced guys that were really loyal to him and put them in positions of power. That really came to bite him in the ass when he got shot in the head and was absolutely useless. Persigo got 14 years in jail, and there was absolutely nobody left to lead the family. Everybody that assumed the role of acting boss because they were already in a position of power failed pretty quickly. 
For context on this quote that I'm about to read, they're talking about how Gambino could step in and mediate this shit show that's going on in the Colombo family, but he wouldn't unless he was called upon and requested to mediate due to tradition. In other words, like, it's tradition that one leader not get involved in family drama of another family until or unless they are asked to do so. I'm going to read a direct quote of this article written by Nicholas Gage. The force of this tradition was illustrated in the Gallo-Perfacci War. Aniello della Croce, said to be Gambino's underboss, at one point in the conflict seemed to be advising Perfacci lieutenants. On hearing of this, Joseph Gallo sought out della Croce and, finding him in the Little Italy section, punched him in the eye. But Gambino did not order any punishment for Gallo striking his underboss because della Croce had breached mafia tradition in siding with Perfacci. Later, however, Raymond Patriarca, the reputed mafia boss of New England, was invited by both sides to mediate the conflict and played a key role in bringing it to an end. I went over that whole situation in the Patriarca video, so go check that out if you're interested in knowing how Patriarca quasi squashed that beef. It ended up not mattering because, like, Joe Gallo got out and was like, nah, fuck that peace treaty. But, you know, whatever. Go go check that out if you're interested. So this whole situation gets a little confusing because there's two Joseph Gallos. There is Crazy Joe Gallo, whose crew jumped Della Croce and almost killed him, and who punched him in the face and also launched the Gallo Wars. He is in the Colombo family. And then there's Joseph N. Gallo, who Della Croce did everything in his power to put into a position of power in his family, and he's from the Gambino family. Even though tradition barred Gambino from stepping in and getting involved, he was questioned by police as much as six to seven times per day regarding the number of bodies that were piling up on New York streets. Even though this newspaper says that the body that popped up recently, that of Richard Grossman, wasn't definitely in retaliation for the killing of Crazy Joe Gallo, they do mention that one person that called in the tip that led cops to finding the body said during that phone call that the death was an answer for the Gallo killing. Don't get too sad that he died, though. He was out on bail at the time that he was killed, and he had been charged with a rape charge, so fuck that dude. The only arrest that had been made up until that point was that of Gallo's bodyguard, Peter Diopolis, on a gun charge, and pretty much, like, the cops pulled a gun out of the gutter and then arrested Diopolis. It was found outside of Umberto's clam house the night that Gallo was killed. They didn't have any idea or lead or source or anything on what happened, so they just took his bodyguard in. After Anastasia was killed, obviously, there's going to be a huge power vacuum that's going to open up. Like, any time a boss is killed, there's a huge power vacuum. You've got the one that everybody assumes right away is going to take power, who in this case is Carlo Gambino. But did you know that there is also a bunch of other power Power players that are in the mix. There was Armand Tommy Riva. Riva was the original owner of the New Corner restaurant in Diker Heights, the restaurant that was used in The Irishman where Sheeran meets Buffalino. I seriously love that freaking movie. The Irishman is an absolute freaking classic. One of the best mafia movies ever made. Apparently, this restaurant closed down a little over a year ago, but that's still a super freaking long run for a restaurant 
in New York that was opened by somebody before Gambino took power. That's awesome. Props to him. Reva accompanied Carlo Gambino and Paul Castellano in their trip to the Appalachian meeting. Reva was a loyalist of Anastasia, and he was very well known to hate Gambino. The FBI reports that after Reva attended the Appalachian meeting, Reva disappeared and was literally never seen again after the Appalachian meeting, and he was thought to have been murdered. The murder has never been solved, and his body has never been found. That's why it kind of confuses me a little bit why Jimmy Hoffa is so important. Like, everyone always made such a big deal about the fact that Hoffa's body was never found, and, like, that's the one that's, like, all well-known. Like, oh, look, we found Hoffa's body as, like, a joke, you know? But why Hoffa? Like, there's so many mafia guys who went missing and never was found, and Hoffa, maybe because he was famous, I don't know. Joseph, Staten Island Joe, Riccobino tagged along to this meeting as well, having been named the consigliere of this new Gambino government that had been put together. Riccobino would remain consigliere for the next 10 years. Joseph, Joe the Blonde, Biondo was given the underboss title. So when Anastasia was killed, and obviously somebody's gonna take over as the next boss of the family, Della Croce had to choose a side, and choose he did. He made his choice, and he put his backing behind Armand Tommy Reva against Gambino. It's not really a surprise, though, that Della Croce would put his backing behind Reva. It wasn't a shocker to anybody. He really loved Reva. They were really close. Reva's first name is where Della Croce got the name that he used for his son. Armand. But that'll tell you how close of a relationship that they have. He named his son after him. They did run into a small problem. Reva didn't live very long after Anastasia died. Reva went missing after being seen at the Appalachian meeting, which was called to discuss who was going to take over power of Anastasia's family after Anastasia's death. Anastasia was killed on October 25th, 1957. The Appalachian meeting was held on November 14th, 1957. So these men wasted absolutely no time. It was about two weeks later. Story was that Tommy Reva had been killed in Florida in late 1957 or 1958, so it doesn't sound like he was killed at the Appalachian meeting. It sounds like he kind of just disappeared after the Appalachian meeting and went missing, and then something went down in Florida a little while later. And he was killed after his unsuccessful attempt to take over the family with Della Croce. According to the FBI, Reva was taken out by Tato Arello. Sammy the Bull Gravano's mentor and cousin of Jimmy Brown. In FBI documents, they discuss what happened to Reva. They explain that Tato, or Little Tato as he's referred to in these documents, was actually a soldier in Reva's crew, but there had been bad blood between the two of them for a while now. Tato went to go pull off the hit, and he told Reva that he had a contract on his head. When he told Reva this, Reva said, Do you know what you're doing? You're not qualified to kill a man of my stature. After he made that shitty, condescending remark, the group that Tato had with him emptied out their whole weapons into these two guys. Honestly, I can't really do justice to this next part, so I'm gonna read directly off the FBI document for you guys. Whereupon Tato and his associates shot Reva's associate and emptied their guns into Reva's chest. However, Reva did not fall. Reva, according to the informant, stood there facing his assassins with blood spouting out of his chest and looked contemptuously at little Tato and his associates. 
This display of masculinity on the part of Reva infuriated Tato, who, with the others, repeatedly beat Reva on the head with their guns until he finally fell dead. Both Reva and his associates were reportedly buried. Informant noted that Della Croce had been able to get himself reinstated within the Gambino contingent, which had taken over the Anastasia family. Not too long after the Appalachian meeting, where half the attendants were arrested, including Gambino, Della Croce got an invite for a meeting with Gambino. Nobody really knows what happened at this meeting, but we do know the outcome. At the end of the day, Della Croce was on board with the new leadership. Della Croce was mafia through and through. He bled La Cosa Nostra. It isn't surprising to hear that once the commission tipped their hat to Gambino's position as boss of the family, Della Croce hopped on board pretty quickly. It really doesn't matter what happened at the end of the day at this meeting. He could have been wooed by Gambino's promises of power that he would have in the future within the family. He could have been paid to move on from Anastasia and Reva's death. He could have been threatened to end up in the same burial site as Reva did. It, it really doesn't matter. All that matters is that the commission acknowledged Gambino's position as boss of the family, and after this meeting, so did Delacroce. After Reva was killed, his crew was divided between Delacroce and Petey Pumps Ferrara. Delacroce got the Manhattan guys, and Ferrara got the Brooklyn guys, like Jimmy Brown and Tato. I'm assuming, given the fact that that's the crew that took out Delacroce's beloved Reva, that he really didn't want them. Maybe he was still offered these guys and he turned them down, or maybe the offer wasn't really made in the first place, who knows. But Tato did not end up in Delacroce's crew. Nobody has any idea who the informant was that told about how Reva was killed, but the informer number was NYT-7. When I went looking to find out if I could find who NYT-7 was, I stumbled on an article revealing that Carmine Persico was a freaking rat, which is absolutely wild. I remember watching a reality show. I want to say it had something to do with Karen Gravano. And there was this dude on there that was a rat, but he put Persico in jail for killing his dad, and he was fighting to get him released from jail because he found out it wasn't actually Persico or something like that, something around those lines. I don't know if it was Persico. I'm so confused. I wish I remembered. I don't, but I wish I did. I talked a lot about Persico in my Joey Gallo episode, but I didn't know that he was a rat at the time that I did that episode. And yeah, since that episode came out, it was released by the FBI that he was a rat. Anyways, Anthony Tough Tony Anastasio was also a contender for power up against Gambino. He was Anastasio's brother, obviously, and he was also a super powerful gangster in his own right. He followed in his brother's footsteps, and he took over the Brooklyn docks, and he ran those for a really long time. We all know that that's the first stepping stone to true power within the Mafia, having power at the docks. Any kind of position at the docks is just guaranteed entry to the Mafia, I swear. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Working at the docks is a gateway job to get into the Mafia. We have also got Vincent James Squalante, a drug trafficker and a leader in the waste management business. 
Usually, it's pretty much a given that any fight between contenders for power is going to end up one way and only one way. One person is going to be left standing when the dust settles, and everybody else that vied for that position of power is going to end up dead or exiled from the family. That was not the fate of Squalante. Even though everybody expected it and nobody would be upset or even surprised if it happened, Gambino left Squalante with the power that he had accumulated up until that point, and he didn't exile him from the family, and he didn't kill him or have him killed. Squalante fought for power up against Gambino, and he was also the one that killed Frank Scalise. Scalise, or Don Cheech, was the underboss under Anastasia. Anastasia had been accused by the commission of selling membership into La Cosa Nostra. Scalise, or Don Cheech, was the underboss under Anastasia. He's somebody I might do an episode on in the future. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. He was born in Palermo, Sicily, so he fit right in with the Castella Marisi crowd. Under Di Aquila, Scalise operated as a powerful capo. He continued working in that capacity when Manfredi Minio and Stefano Steve Ferrigno took over as boss and underboss when Di Aquila was killed on October 10th, 1928. They were strong supporters of Masseria, but Scalise continued on with his allegiance to Maranzano. When Minio and Ferrigno were killed by the Castella Marisi on November 5th, 1930, Scalise took over as boss of the family. He had Maranzano's blessing to do so. The problem came when Masseria was killed on April 5th, 1931. After Masseria was killed, Maranzano proclaimed himself boss of bosses, or capo di tutti capi, and instituted the five families that we all know and love today. Each family had to have a boss. Since Luciano had already taken out Masseria, his boss, Maranzano promised that Luciano would have a good amount of sway when it came to how the families were created. And a lot of people say that the idea to have five families actually came from Luciano. There were five proposed bosses of the family, the men that were currently sitting in the position of boss of each of those families. Luciano would lead one, Joe Perfacci another, Thomas Gagliano, Maranzano, and Scalise, would each continue as the boss of their respective families. Now, keep in mind, while Maranzano is putting these families together, he is also putting together plans to take out Luciano. Maranzano had a plan in place. He had the time and date set. Everything was all set up to take out Luciano. Everything is a go, and, you know, it's gonna happen. Unfortunately for Maranzano, but fortunately for La Cosa Nostra and for Luciano, Lucchese gave Luciano a heads up that he was about to get whacked. Luciano then set up the killing of Maranzano, and on September 10th, 1931, Maranzano was killed. Luciano turned away the possession of Capu di Tutti Capi, and he made the commission a ruling body that each had equal say on any important decisions that had to be made. He rejected Frank Scalise from the position of power. He didn't want him being the boss because he believed that he was too close with Maranzano, and he probably had a bone to pick with whoever took out Maranzano, and since he was the one that took out Maranzano... He had a problem with that. And Luciano thought that he just couldn't ride this wave into the new mafia that he was setting up. 
He gave the job to Vincent Mangano, where Scalise would continue to operate as capo of the family. He gave the position as boss of Maranzano's family to his underboss, Joseph Bonanno. Why he allowed Bonanno, Maranzano's prodigy, to continue as boss, but wouldn't let Scalise continue? Well, if you're interested in this topic, go check out my video on Bonanno. I will link it below. When Gambino took over as boss of the family, he put Joseph Biondo in place as underboss of the family. Joseph the Blonde Biondo was a close friend of Dutch Schultz and Lucky Luciano. After nine years in the position of underboss of the family, Gambino removed him from the position of underboss in 1965 and he made Della Croce his new underboss. Gambino told people that it was because Biondo was aging and couldn't really do the job anymore. But CIs told the FBI that it was really because of his involvement with narcotics trafficking, which Gambino had always been very against. He wasn't as against it as his protege, Castellano. Castellano would kill you for it. Gambino wouldn't kill you for it, but he was not about to have his underboss doing it. That's just a bad luck. At the same time that he made Della Croce his underboss, he made Joe Gallo, this is Joseph N. Gallo, not Crazy Joe Gallo, his new consigliere. He did this because Riccobino retired, nothing bad happened to him, nothing bad happened with him, he just didn't want the headache anymore, he stepped down, Gallo stepped up. Apparently though, there's a real story with Biondo. Let's talk about it. Biondo had had a few very well-liked mafiosi killed without getting permission from the commission. He had a man named Anthony, who owned a bunch of bakeries, killed despite the fact that this mysterious Anthony was good friends with a lot of high-ranking mafiosi. Police ruled his death a suicide before the rat informed them that actually he was murdered. When Biondo was removed from that position, he got more involved in business on the other side of the river. He started working more heavily with Sam DeCabacante, in his work in sanitation. Now, he was taken out of the position of underboss of the family, but he was still one of the most powerful capos in the family. Della Croce stepped up to be the underboss, but he's still a very, very important person in the family. It's not like he got kicked out of the family, he's still in it. But he hid this revenue from Gambino. Apparently he's still like a little salty about the fact that he got taken out of his position as underboss. Now, if you watch my video about Takavacante, you know that Takavacante, he is a real one. He rides for his boys, and Gambino, Gambino is one of his boys. So he goes to Gambino, and he tips Gambino off that Biondo is making money with him and doing some shisty shit and not reporting it to him. When Gambino found out about this deception, he took Biondo out of power for good. Like, bro, I gave you too many chances. You're out. Done. Goodbye. In 1971, Aniello Della Croce was sentenced to a year in prison for contempt of court for failing to answer questions about organized crime posed by a grand jury. On May 2nd, 1972, he was charged by federal authorities for tax evasion. And we know those are the most serious ones. That's the one where the cops know that you're up to no good, but they can't catch you on anything criminal, so what's the thing they're gonna do? They're gonna charge you with taxes. I feel like if I was ever, I would never be able to be a jury member. I would never find somebody guilty of tax evasion because if the cops are coming after you for tax evasion, it doesn't mean that you evaded taxes. It just means that they know you're a criminal, but they can't get you on a crime, so they're gonna go after your money, and they're gonna put you in jail 
for tax evasion. So if anybody ever finds anybody guilty of tax evasion, just know that 99% chance they didn't really do it. De La Croce was tried for not paying taxes on stocks that were worth $112,500, and by March of 1973, he was given a five-year prison sentence and fined $15,000. In 1976, Carlo Gambino was on the brink of death when he announced that he was going to be giving the position of boss of the family to Paul Castellano when he passed away. Paul was his brother-in-law, his cousin. I talked a lot about the relationship between Paul Castellano and Carlo Gambino in my Paul Castellano video, also linked. It had been presumed that Tilla Croce would replace Gambino, but everybody was really shocked when he announced that Castellano would be ascending instead. By now, Della Croce headed several crews, and he was supported by a lot of members. All the members supported Della Croce. Gambino's decision pissed off a lot of Gambinos. Della Croce and other members of the family saw Castellano as more of a businessman and a white-collar gangster, not somebody that should be ruling the family or anybody that should be giving them laws to live by. Nobody wanted any part of him being boss. On October 15, 1976, Carlo Gambino died at Home of Natural Causes. At the time that Gambino died, Della Croce was in prison for the tax evasion charges. He wasn't able to contest Castellano being named the boss. Not that he would have if he could. Again, the boss is the boss is the boss. Castellano's succession was confirmed at a meeting of the commission on November 24th, and Della Croce was present at that meeting. Castellano made it clear that Della Croce was allowed, expected even, to continue in his spot as the underboss of the family. Della Croce was the gangster of the family, he was the muscle that would work with the criminals, and Castellano kind of looked at himself as like the brains of the family. While Della Croce accepted Castellano's new position as boss of the family, the deal it kind of split the Gambino family into two rival factions. In the late 1970s, Della Croce got pulled into another major set of charges where police were investigating the murder of a Yonkers loan shark and Gambino associate named Charles Charlie Bear Calise. The medical examiner said that Calise had been shot in both eyes, each ear, and directly in the mouth, which is like obviously a clear sign that he had seen too much, he had heard too much, and he talked too much. And it made it pretty clear this was a mafia hit. Calise operated under a family soldier named Anthony Plata, better known as Tony Plate or TP, and also he would be known as the Pitbull. He originally operated out of the Bronx and Yonkers areas, but he had since moved to Florida and continued the role that he had in New York working as a loan shark and a gambler, just kind of flying the Gambino flag in his position in Florida. There were stories on the street about some crazy shit that Plata would do. He was known to be a psychopath. There were stories of a time that a dude owed him money and Plata went to his job, jumped on his desk, spit in his face, and bit his nose off. 
That's just a story, though. It's not true. What actually happened was that he went to the office of Sidney Carp, owner of Hollandale Motors Incorporated, who was in debt $40,000 to Plata. He stood on his desk, he spit in his face, and he threatened to bite his nose off. He didn't actually bite his nose off. No nose was bitten. Plata was also a part of the group that killed George Beerum, the dude that broke into Anthony Gaggi's Florida home. Another story that I reviewed in a past video. The Mafia is like a small little community, okay? So a lot of these times I'm bringing up situations that happened in other videos, okay? I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about it. When Plata left New York and headed for Florida, he left Calise in charge of his Bronx rackets, and Calise would just pay him his share monthly. Plata started getting uneasy about Calise. He was convinced that he must have flipped, and there was nothing that could have convinced him otherwise. After Plata brought his concerns to Della Croce, Calise was found at 3.58 a.m. in the back seat of a 1974 Buick station wagon parked in the Clarkstown Plaza shopping center. He had been shot with a small caliber weapon, catching five bullets to the head and face on July 7th, 1974, with no defensive wounds on him, so he didn't even see it coming, which is actually really awesome. Regardless of what they did, you don't ever want to hear that somebody suffered at the end, so I'm happy to hear that. The medical examiner said that he died of brain destruction and severe bleeding. I've never seen that cause of death listed, brain destruction, but I really like it. I feel like I'm undergoing brain destruction on a regular friggin' basis, so I feel that. I feel you. Plata was not wrong about his suspicions. Calise had flipped and become an FBI informant. He probably flipped when he was arrested in 1972 for operating a $2.5 million a year policy operation. The reputation of his father, Anthony Teddy Bear Calise, who had been convicted of bookmaking, did absolutely no favors for him, and he was most likely looking at 15 to 20 years, and he didn't want to do it, so he flipped and got immunity and started ratting. According to the FBI, Plata killed Calise on Della Croce's orders. A few years later, in May of 1979, Della Croce was arrested at his girlfriend's house in Staten Island, where, according to the FBI, agents broke down the door and found Della Croce huddled in the corner of the bedroom. They nabbed Plata in Bay Harbor Island in Florida and charged him with loan sharking, obstruction of federal investigations, interstate travel in aid of racketeering, and with the Calise murder. These eight charges were a result of an 11-year investigation surrounding the two gangsters. So Plata and Della Croce, they both got charged with all of those charges. It did not take long for Della Croce to figure out that his chances at beating the case would be greatly improved if he was tried alone, especially since Plata was the main link and common denominator between Calise and Della Croce. Charlie Wagons or Carmine Fatigo, a close personal friend and capo under Della Croce, brought up the obvious fact. If Plata disappears, Della Croce is way more likely to walk away with a not guilty verdict or, at the very least, a hung jury. In August of 1979, John Gotti and Angelo Ruggiero took a trip down to Miami to spend an extended weekend. And at the same time as they took their trip, tragedy struck. Coincidentally... Tony Plata and a longtime friend of his disappeared while they were running an errand in the friend's car, and neither of them were ever seen again. 
It's said now that more than likely it was Willie Boy Johnson that killed Plata. But at the time, everybody thought it was John Gotti and Angelo Ruggiero because they took that little trip to Miami. Federal prosecutors lost the Calise case against Della Croce. The jury deliberated for three days before returning a verdict of not guilty. The Gambino family had strict rules against drugs and its distribution by the organization. Castellano upheld this ban, but the younger members, they disagreed with him, and that caused a huge rift in the Gambino family. Gotti was a member of Carmine Charlie Wagon's Batigo's gang. The crew hung out at the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club, their official headquarters, and they came to be known as the Bergen Crew. In May of 1972, Fatico was indicted on charges in Suffolk County. As a condition of letting him out on bail, he was unable to consort with known criminals, which everybody in his crew happened to be. This is a problem, because he commands over 120 men. He can't just have everybody running around with no idea who the leader is. So what does he do? He puts Gotti in place as the acting capo. And in this capacity, Gotti had to go and meet up with Della Croce on a regular basis to update him on the crew's goings-on and kick up any money that Fatigo would usually kick up. At the time, Fatigo's crew is making about $30 million a year. So his crew is easily Della Croce's top earners. So here comes John Gotti walking into Della Croce's office swaggering around with his expensive clothes and his obnoxious attitude. At the end of the day, though, John Gotti was more than willing to do whatever needed to be done. If you told him to kill someone, no problem. Anything that could make him money was a project that he was fully on board for, and he was known for the brutal tactics that he would use to get people to pay money back that they owed him. That's what made Fatico initially like him, which made Della Croce take Gotti and a few other members of his crew under his wing as his own protege. Another redeeming quality of Gotti's is that he's best friends with Angelo Quack Quack Ruggiero, Della Croce's nephew and another protege of Della Croce's. Della Croce paid forward what Anastasia had done for him in the past. He was Anastasia's protege, and when Anastasia became boss, he appointed Della Croce to a higher seat of power, and Della Croce wanted his own protege. Ruggiero got the nickname Quack Quack for two different reasons. One is that he never shut the hell up. He would talk and talk and talk. He gossiped and griped and complained and talked. Apparently, ducks quack a lot? I don't know what that has to do with ducks, but that's one of the reasons he got the Quack Quack nickname. I think it had more to do with the second issue, which was that he had issues with his feet, so when he walked, he kind of waddled like a duck. So I think it had more to do with that, but they say that it had a lot to do with the fact that he never shut the fuck up, too. Gotti saw dealing in drugs as a lucrative business, and he was one of the people that just hated Castellano. Gotti and Ruggiero were already super deep into trafficking heroin, and it wasn't as easy to get out of that as, like, oh, I don't feel like doing this anymore. Eventually, he and his crew were indicted with conspiracy to sell heroin. Della Croce did follow Castello's orders on his drug ban, and Castellano had intended to kill anybody that did not follow those orders. So the government continued to not be able to get Della Croce on any criminal thing, so what do they do for the second time? They come after him again. 
for tax evasion. In November of 1984, he was arrested for income tax evasion and charged again. A few months later, in March of 1985, he was indicted on the most serious charges that he'd ever been indicted on. He was one of 10 Gambino family members that were charged with a federal RICO conspiracy and a whole bunch of related charges. His co-defendants included John Gotti, who was a capo at the time, Angelo Ruggiero, and several of their close associates. They were accused of conducting an 18-year-long racket, which operated two crews out of Manhattan and Brooklyn, and encompassed gambling, truck hijacking, loan sharking, extortion, and murder. De La Croce is accused of overseeing and directing this entire group. Also, in December of 1985, he was accused of being one of 11 reputed members of the Commission, the regulatory body of La Cosa Nostra in the United States. However, De La Croce had cancer, and he was really sick and didn't have long to live. He had lung cancer and was rapidly declining. Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, who I hate with every single cell in my body, my mom loved that guy, I hate him, but Giuliani knew this, so he rolled both of Della Croce's outstanding cases into one so that he would be able to go to court on all of his charges, knowing that he didn't have long enough to be healthy for two trials. He knew he was too sick to go to court for very long and that it wouldn't be very long until a judge ruled that he was not fit to stand trial. So Giuliani put all the charges into one because he was absolutely not having the judge rule him incompetent. The funny part about the commission trial is that Della Croce's own protege had lit that spark. He was the one that ignited the charges. He was the one that allowed all those charges to come against him. Not only him, but the boss of the family, Paul Castellano, as well. And the leaders of all the rest of the families kind of got wrapped up into it. I talked a lot about what went down with Ruggiero and how he caused the commission trials in my John Gotti video, which is linked below, but I'll do a quick recap for anybody that didn't watch that episode or has no plans on going to watch that episode or doesn't care about that episode. Ruggiero's brother Salvatore Ruggiero was driving an airplane through Savannah, Georgia when it crashed and he and his girlfriend were killed. On the plane was a shit ton of heroin. Ruggiero was very publicly close to his brother, so the FBI used the fact that his brother was carting heroin to get a wiretap greenlit by a judge. If his brother is, then he probably is. When they placed bugs in Ruggiero's home in Cedarhurst, Long Island, they heard Ruggiero, who was notorious for being a gossip, talking about everything. Drug dealing, family business, they even heard him complaining about who he referred to as the boss, Big Paul Castellano. He also references the bosses of other families as well. They used this wiretap information and him talking about the boss of the family and everything, and they used that as an excuse to get wiretaps on Paul Castellano's residence. When Castellano found out that he was getting arrested for the commission trials, he knew exactly where these charges came from, Ruggiero's wiretaps. The day that Ruggiero was arrested for these wiretaps, all the tapes that were made about him were made available to him, and Castellano wanted them. Obviously, Ruggiero was like, uh, absolutely not, because if Castellano gets his hands on these tapes, he is caught red-handed, he knows that. He's drug dealing, he admits it on those tapes, he talks about it on those tapes, so he is not handing over those tapes. 
He became aware of the tapes in June of 1985, and he went into hiding. Castellano threatened that if Ruggiero did not produce these tapes to him, he was going to break up the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club, and he was going to take out Ruggiero. All this time, Ruggiero had been lying to the boss, Castellano, and his uncle, Della Croce. He had been telling them that he wasn't dealing drugs, and any time that they had gotten a whiff that he had something to do with a drug deal or a drug dealer or anything, he told them that it was because he was closing up business for his brother, Salvatore Ruggiero, who had died in the airplane crash. He did not stop drug dealing, though. And the taped conversations with Alphonse Sica and Arnold Squitieri, two known drug traffickers that Ruggiero was working with, proved that. When Paul was arrested, he learned that his house also had bugs in it, and that Ruggiero's bugs had been used as the legal basis to place the bugs in his own house. When Castellano went to Della Croce and demanded those tapes, Della Croce tried to hold off Castellano. He said that Ruggiero didn't want to hand over these tapes because there was personally embarrassing moments on them that he didn't want anybody else to hear. Even though Castellano swore that he only wanted those tapes to give to his lawyers, who were trying to suppress not only those tapes, but his own tapes as well, Ruggiero continued to refuse. When even Della Croce was telling Ruggiero to hand them over, Ruggiero got super pissed at Della Croce. He said that it was a betrayal that he even entertained the thought of requiring him to hand these tapes over, and if they were ever handed over, Castellano would kill him for sure. Gotti, Sammy the Bulgravano, Frank DeChico, and Ruggiero went to Della Croce and they told him that they wanted to kill Paul Castellano, and they asked for his blessing. Della Croce, the old-school mafioso, whose mantra was, the boss is the boss is the boss, said, absolutely not. He told Ruggiero to hand over the tapes, said that he would protect him if he did, but he also said that under no circumstance was anybody to go after Castellano. He would kill them himself if they tried. Aniello Della Croce died on December 2nd, 1985, when he was 71 years old. His health had been deteriorating for a while, and he suffered from lung cancer. He had been in the hospital under the name Timothy O'Neill for two weeks before his death. He died at Mary Immaculate Hospital in Queens, New York, and he was buried at St. John's Cemetery in Queens. Aniello Della Croce's death had a significant impact on the already divided Gambino family, and a lot of other criminal families in New York as well. Gotti and his crew already had all the plans in place to take out Castellano. They had been in place for, I think, six or eight months. They just wouldn't move forward on the hit because Della Croce said no. But now that Della Croce was gone, green light, baby. I talked a lot about Della Croce's impact on the Castellano hit in my Gotti video. And the Castellano hit and everything about all of that is in the Gotti video, so go check that out if you want to. But Della Croce saying no, it brought Castellano and his leadership structure at least six months. Just because Della Croce said no, and everybody around him had so much respect for him that they took his no. That's a lot of respect from a lot of really, really powerful and ruthless men. That says a lot about Della Croce's reputation and his relationship with these guys. Two weeks after Della Croce's death, his top protege, John Gotti, would put together a crew that would assassinate Paul Castellano and seize power, and John Gotti would soon be named the boss of the family. 
We all know what the fate of the Gambino family was under John Gotti and what John Gotti's fate was. Again, all in my Gotti video if you're interested. Della Croce's son, Armand, died at the age of 32 years old of a cerebral hemorrhage in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, where he had been living for two years while he hid out from the police. His cause of death was alcoholic cirrhosis and cocaine overdose. He had pleaded guilty in 1985 to racketeering after he was indicted with his father for racketeering charges that included murder, loan sharking, gambling, and hijackings, but he failed to appear for sentencing on March 31st, 1986. And he just decided, like, I'm going on the lam instead. I'm not doing that. I think that he assumed that because his father had died, it would delay or even impede these proceedings. But when Giuliani came out and said that Della Croce's death wouldn't impact the rest of the case, Armand noped the fuck out of there. When Della Croce died, Castellano was on trial for car theft, murder, and conspiracy, and in a separate trial, the whole lot of them were charged in the commission trials. The commission trials, labeled as Operation Genus, were the result of an investigation that spanned five years, beginning in 1980, when the FBI set up five individual teams and each team was tasked with investigating each of the five families to build a RICO case against each one of them. The case was officially called the United States versus Salerno, referencing Anthony Salerno, Genovese family boss. In this operation, the FBI planted 171 bugs and wiretaps, which produced over 4,000 hours of conversation. By the end of the investigation, the FBI had built a case that would specifically outline the structure, hierarchy, and activities of each of the families in New York City. They filed RICO charges against each of the five families individually, and then they lumped all four families together. The Bonanno family wasn't included in this because they had been kicked out of the commission following a situation where they allowed an undercover FBI agent, Joe Pistone, to infiltrate their family to the point of contemplating making him a made man before he was pulled out of the case and charges were brought against the family. So they brought the four families, the other four families together in the commission trials and the Bonanos were charged separately. And the fact that this Joe Pistone thing had taken the Bonanno family apart actually ended up working in their favor for the commission trials. The murder charges of the commission were pertaining to the killing of Carmine Galante. The extortion was a scheme to take over the District Council of Concrete and Cement Workers Union, or the New York Concrete Industry, and the loan sharking was based in Staten Island. Paul Castellano and Aniello Della Croce were the first two members listed on the commission trials, but neither one of them lived long enough to see the trial. When the trial did happen on September 8, 1986, it must have been amazing to see. Like, to be a freaking fly on the wall of this trial. The prosecutors took the jury through a long and detailed history of La Cosa Nostra, detailing every mafioso to have power since the commission's creation in 1931. It also included testimony from Angelo Leonardo, Big Joe Leonardo's son, who had turned rat in 1983, which legit would have had Big Joe Leonardo flipping over in his grave. Based on Angelo Leonardo's testimony, the Senate released a document called Organized Crime, 25 Years After Valachi. The U.S. Government Printing Office 
Post published it in 1988, and you can legit read through every single word of his testimony. It's amazing. I actually read through the entire thing. I'll post a link to it below if you want to read through it. If you're into mafia history, I suggest you do it because it is absolutely epic. The estimated earnings of the Gambino family at the time of Della Croce's death was a million dollars per day. Not per week, not per month, not per year. One million dollars a day. So that is all I have on Aniela Della Croce. And what do you think about his story? Do you believe that he was who his dreadful reputation played him up to be? Or do you think that him being considered as a no-nonsense underboss and taskmaster was exaggerated? Let me know in the comments below. Thanks for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. And please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!